Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Marjorie Conway, who has spent her career working at the Central Intelligence Agency as a case officer. Marjorie was the first woman to file and win a class action lawsuit for discrimination against women's operation officers at the CIA. You all should know that Marjorie Conway is an alias that was required to be used in conjunction with the lawsuit. Marjorie, hi, thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing really good. I'm really excited about this episode. All right. All right. So should we get started? Yes. Fire away. All right. So Marjorie, you started your career as an account executive for a public relations firm in Manhattan. How did you find your way to the CIA and what did you do when you arrived there? Well, in the late eighties, I was working in Manhattan international PR firm, um, I responded to what I later learned was the first ever job advertisement by the CIA in the New York Times. Uh, The ad seemed to be offering something beyond a job. It implied a career driven by challenges as opposed to focusing on salary. And uh, while it took what seemed like a lifetime, I applied and eventually my application made its way through the system And I faced a myriad of forms, interviews, sundry tests, some of which I still don't understand. (laughs) Meanwhile, men in dark suits were ringing my neighbor's doorbells and asking about me. All my neighbors gleefully reported back to me on all of these things. Uh, When I first got there, first day on the job was a hot, sticky Washington, D.C. summer day in July. I had on a nice white silk flowing skirt with a matching top and a red ribbon tied high and tight on my neck with red earrings and glorious red stilettos. I was looking really good. Ooh. I, well, I'm from New York. I arrived (laughs) at the designated place, this ugly old Ames building in Roslyn. And I waited in the beige gray for my good waiting area. And looked around, utterly underwhelmed by the array of white shirts and bland polyester suits that surrounded me. It was a uniform, apparently, and I was never much for uniforms. This was a very different planet from Manhattan's Upper East Side. Everything seemed to move in slow motion, as if underwater. I had an uncomfortable feeling in my stomach, competing with my excitement at embarking on this particular adventure. Then we, the bland polyester suits and I, were brought up to a room in a, with a fair amount of office work junk piled in it. A very uh, pleasant middle-aged woman with clothes that fit her once, but not now, uh, welcomed us and uh, delivered the oath that we all swore to. And then she passed out forms for us to 
fill out and sign. She spoke a foreign language, bureaucraties, with elements of English sprinkled in it, giving me flashing peeks at what was she was actually saying. I did not understand, for example, why I should be sign, signing a form waving away my rights to overtime pay, but the salary was already baked in the agreement, so I signed it. I also signed away my right to free speech. It took a little while for that one to really sink in. After spending approximately three weeks going to this Ames building and learning about the boxes on this massive wiring diagram, which was the CIA, career trainee class, CT class, all the new hires going into the DO. And uh, we were then dispatched without having read cables or seen anything related to intelligence other than the wiring diagram. Dispatched to headquarters offices for our first interim. Wow. So I, I felt like I was there. That was That is pretty amazing. So you mentioned the DO. Uh, can you share with our listeners a brief overview of the Directorate of Operations and the case officer role? What are the different roles you can have in the DO and how do each support the case officer? So the CIA is currently divided into five directorates. When I uh, uh, joined, it was four, and it's been in the last five or six years they've added another directorate. Uh, you can go on the CIA website and see a lot of the explanation of the structure and design of, of the uh, Central Intelligence Agency. It's, it hasn't changed all that much, except for the mission centers, from how it was designed in 1947. The Directorate of Operations, there's a Directorate of Analysis, a Directorate of Science and Technology, and a Directorate of, of, of uh, Support. Um, the Directorate of Operations is responsible for uh, collecting and processing what's called human, human foreign intelligence information, human. It is where intelligence operations to collect human are designed and run the people responsible for recruiting the sources of intelligence, we call them assets, are the operations officers. Uh, but before my lawsuit, they were known as case officers. All of, this, all of the significant positions in the DO, in the Directorate of Operations, and to a certain extent to the agency at large, were historically held by male case officers. Uh, lately, other career tracks uh, in the DO get a bit more attention, and that's a good thing. Desk officers, reports officers, targeting officers, etc. Uh, but this is a more recent uh, development and was actually a byproduct of my lawsuit. Uh, each of these other roles supports the job that the, that the case officer or operations officer is doing uh, by performing special functions. These, they, what they call the SOO, S -O -O, which we used to call desk officer, has the responsibility of, of keeping track of the case officers' uh, operations in the fields and making sure that all of the right offices in headquarters are coordinated. They, they, they don't like surprises in this organization. So a lot of the things that they had built in are to avoid surprises. Uh, the reports officer, now called a CMO, coordinates the reporting uh, as it comes in with the different uh, offices in the DO where it's supposed to go, and also with the, uh, the analysts in the Directorate of Analysis, making sure the reporting gets to where it needs to go, and that it makes sense, and that it isn't something that we've already got. 
the targeting officer who also supports uh, the case officer, I wish I had had one when I was in the field, <laughs> um, helps the case officer identify the best targets for human in their area of operations. And that's basically what's there. You know, in, in the old days, the case officer wrote their own reports, sent them off themselves, and, and a headquarters reports officer would review them. Now they have more reports officers in the field, I think. Uh, so, and they were, there were no targeting officers. Case officers had to do that. We just automatically did it. So there we are. That's great information, especially for aspiring CIA uh, folks who are, are looking at the DO. That's, that's a, a good explanation and, and layout. So thank you for that. Um, so what do you believe makes a good case officer and what skills or abilities helped you land that job and excel once you got there? Well, uh, in order to, to recruit and effectively uh, handle uh, assets, you really have to be trustworthy. No cool red stilettos are required for this. <laughs> uh, the people you are interacting with uh, as, as, as a case officer, as an ops officer, will be placing themselves and their families at a certain level of, of risk, potentially even serious harm's way. So it's extremely important that you be trustworthy, that you, they can know that you will keep them safe. It does not require a fighter pilot attitude. In fact, it's better if you're approachable, um, easy to work with, clear, consistent, focused, uh, empathetic, because it's always about managing people. People are never a constant. They're always shifting and changing. And you have to, you have to manage your relationships. These, these are tricky relationships. And while I learned a lot about intelligence tradecraft when I joined the DO, when I came to the agency, I really brought a lot of my people management skills with me from my previous experience in the private sector. I think that starting out, I, I felt that the a difference that I observed between men and women case officers was that the w women had less ego involved and they were quicker to think about what does my, uh, what does that my asset need? Not what's easiest for me, but what do they need? Mm -hmm. uh, such as a, a Christmas presents. Uh, you might have somebody who uh, an asset who has a grandchild who is crazy about butterflies. So you find a special butterfly collection kit somewhere and give it to him for that, for his grandchild. Or maybe somebody's wife has a favorite a, a expensive French perfume that they like. So you make the effort of getting that for that person. Whereas the, the men, um, I can't attest to all of them, but certainly <laughs> the ones that I witnessed in my career pretty much just got that ass out a bottle of scotch and give him a slap on the back and say, good job, pal. Um, happy holidays. Uh, women went the extra mile to make it more personal to those individuals. And let's see. Oh, and women were more flexible in what they were willing to do as long as it was a, a, a legitimate task. I know quite a few women who, uh, who took on things that Nobody else in the in the station wanted to do. I, I was given on my first tour two areas of responsibility, and I knew that I got them because nobody else in the office wanted anything to do with them. Fine. Uh, then I then I had a clear path, and I could build my own programs. I recognized that it was a real chance to succeed, and I didn't attach uh, ego to to 
the substance of, of what I was being assigned to. I was, I was focused on my ability and the freedom to, to build a case, build programs and succeed. Demonstrate that I could do it no matter what the subject matter. Uh, also, you need to have um, uh, the freedom to work long hours uh, if you're going to be successful. Uh, I had one other advantage in establishing the sense of trustworthiness on my first tour, and that is that I was pregnant uh, for much of the first year that I was uh, overseas my, on my first tour. And that had an amazing impact on my assets because I, I got them trained to never show up late for meetings, and they had their homework with them. You know, they weren't going to waste my time. I'd say, don't you leave me. Don't you leave me standing around with my swollen ankles in this. <laughs> and they all thought they were our, the secret godfather to my child. And it just built a sense of closeness. I, 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 they loved the fact that I was uh, going to stay in country to have the child and not go back to the United States. So. So that is really surprising to me because I think most of our listeners, including myself, you know, they regard the uh, case officer role as like the sexy job in the intelligence community. But it sounds like, you know, trustworthiness, empathy, and life skills were more important to your success than just being seductive or cool. Well, right. And I was the first female case officer to ever have a child overseas while on the job. They, <laughs> and yeah, if they had known I was pregnant when I left, they never would have let me go. They would have found a way to sabotage it. And, uh, but uh, so there it is. Yes. It, this this idea of seduction, I think Diana Vreeland, uh, the fashionista who d- d- now deceased, said that seduction was the art of saying no while maintaining interest and allure. And, you know, it's all about allure. Yeah, that's true. And it can be useful sometimes to be a bit of a lightning rod. But in the main, you don't want to be. In the main, you want a lower profile. Right. So... You know, despite your success as a case officer, you found it very difficult to get promoted. When did you begin to observe indicators that gender discrimination was going to be a problem in your own career? Well, indicators of gender disparity were all around me from the moment I arrived. But that, that that's, you know, I had that working in Manhattan as well, but just not the same kind and not uh, as, as tightly controlled. Um, uh, remember that wiring diagram class that I mentioned in the beginning mm-hmm. uh what we were each required to take because we were assigned two or three of those boxes that we had to go find out what that office does in the organization and where they fit in and then make a little presentation in the class on those boxes I stood up with the, to, to make my presentation in the, that very beginning like the second week I was there and as I started to do my presentation one of my lovely male colleagues shouted out, you know, you're only here because they were told they had to start hiring women. Oh my. That, that was from one of my classmates. And I just thought to myself, well, we're not going to lose our cool over this jerk. And I just said, oh, hon, I'm here because I am so goddamn good at this. They couldn't afford not to hire me. <laughs> nice and then I went on with my presentation and I got a round of applause for at the end. So that, that was, that was it's just a warm up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a whole nother story. Uh, it really became unlucrative. As a woman in, in the 80s, you dealt with all sorts of uh, gender discrimination issues. But uh, 
I had a pretty high tolerance for a certain amount of it. It was just when it interfered with my promotion that I said, whoa, this is, this, this can't be. And I had, uh, it was after my, I did very well in training. I ranked, ranked very high in the class. And um, I just finished about a year with my, on my first assignment after training and um, had to have my PAR. That stands for performance appraisal report. And this is my first PAR. I'm getting excited now because I knew I had done a good job. And uh, so that's fine. I, I read what the supervisor had written. And I noticed that the supervisor had introduced a surprise element in my evaluation and was criticizing me for not doing something I was never instructed or advised to do. In fact, I had never heard of it. Blindsided blindsided. And this is in an organization that is really very specific about what everybody's job is. They don't want people going off the reservation. They want people staying in their lane. They don't like any surprises in terms of, uh, of uh, what people consider their uh, appropriate work. So uh, I was really, really surprised at this. I found the fellow who had had my job before me. I said, hey, did you have any surprises on your par with regard to X, Y, or Z? And he says, oh, no, it went perfectly. He had gotten promoted for, his, for doing the same job I had just done. And so he just he, you know, shrugged it off and thought it was crazy. No, he didn't have any of those problems. So these hidden standards were manufactured for me and I suspect for other women. Uh, because they wanted to have something negative to say about my performance, even if it was only slightly negative. That's all. It, that's all it has to be. And I would want you know walk the halls of the DO coordinating cables. It was kind of a normal process in those days before it was all electronic. And I noticed that 100% of the branch chiefs in the DO, certainly in the places that I was going to, were men. 100%. A few had had women as deputies. I later learned they'll let you be the deputy of anything. They just won't let you be the chief. In fact, one one such woman, uh, when I brought in a cable to coordinate with her, she was a deputy branch chief, just yelled and said, yeah, get out of here as fast as you can. They're going to make your life miserable. They're never going to let you succeed. I mean, and I was a little taken aback. <laughs> and I guessed that her anger was hard earned. Um, uh, our paths crossed again about 20 years later in different circumstances, but there were plenty of, plenty of warning signs about the, the discrimination against women. Wow. Can you, uh, can you provide us a bit of background about the class action lawsuit at the agency and what was the impetus for the lawsuit and how did it unfold over time? Okay. Well, I've been thinking about it for a lot of years. I was sort of waiting for the right time to do it. Gender discrimination at that point in time, because uh, I filed in December of 92, uh, gender discrimination for women case officers, women in these other career tracks could get promoted. That's not line operations management. Case officers were operations management and they didn't want women in that. Mm-hmm. So you could you could you could be a reports officer or a specialist in something else, and and you could get promoted just fine. And the the smart women did a, a tour or two as as a case officer, then got out of the career track and became something else, and they would be promoted. That's fine. But I didn't. I said this is wrong. We, I should be able to stay in this career track and not be forced out. 
so that it can be an all boy event. But it was it was uh, also the DO operated outside the law in much of what they did because when you go overseas, you're violating the laws in other countries. Mm-hmm. So so there was always kind of a yeah yeah yeah. Plus everything was classified. They put secret on you know you were going to take off a week's vacation, but all that's got to be secret. You know <laughs> they. They classified everything as a way of protecting a lot of their personnel stuff, which shouldn't have been classified, was classified, I thought. But uh, in the mid-70s, um, William Colby was the director of Central Intelligence, and and Richard Nixon had just extended the, the equal rights law that was the original language of it, restricted it to the private sector, didn't, cap, didn't capture the federal government. So Nixon in 74... Uh, uh, signed an executive order extending that law to all of the federal government. And Colby saw that and said, okay, CIA is going to comply with that law. So the decision came down from on high that that women and minorities were going to be uh, hired to do those things. And my hiring was to a certain extent, not completely, but to a certain extent, part of that, that new uh, push so they're making that change, but the DL culture hadn't changed at all. So now they're bringing in more women and minorities into, into the DO, and they're not doing anything to blow the dinosaurs out. I mean, I was the meteorite that had to hit the planet to get the dinosaurs to change their behavior. So the culture hadn't changed. And uh, by 1992, um, I had been in, in operations for 12 years. I had had two promotions. My male classmates had had at least four. Wow. I had other uh, women classmates who um, had more promotions, but they left the career track. They got out of case officer track and became a a desk officer or a ports officer or something else. Hmm. So as I looked around, the women who stayed in in the track were not getting promoted. And they especially didn't like women with children. That was definitely a no-no, but. So I, I decided, you know, oops, it looks like I'm going to have to be the one to do this, right? I knew I had to be, I had to have a few things in order. I had to pick the timing very carefully. I, December 92, because I wanted a White House that was in Democratic Party hands and not Republican hands, because I didn't want to have serious opposition coming from the White House, this being part of the executive branch of government. Mm-hmm. And I had to build a case. I knew I'd have to get my hands on the statistics because it was going to be a case that was that you make or break based on statistics. It's all about the numbers. And so I had to figure out how I was going to get the statistics, hunt those down. And it was about getting lawyers. So uh, I waited for the election results in, in uh, November 92. The Democrats won. The Clintons were moving in. When I filed my uh, EEO complaint with class language in, in December, and then I went hunting for lawyers, I ended up with thirteen of them. Wow! So aside from one very wonderful and helpful, supportive colleague, I was utterly alone in this because I did all this from overseas. I wasn't in the United States. Oh. I filed. I filed this from overseas. And so um, the agency wasn't saying anything about it. Uh, they were keep very quiet and no, nobody knew it was going on. <laughs> and it didn't really get into rock and roll stages until I was, they brought me back at the end of my tour. And then I could actively market and promote my, uh, my lawsuit. 
And I started what became a serious and apparently very successful uh, public relations campaign in the cafeteria every day, telling people, man, you got to sue the agency. This is great. I can help you do it. You are going to love it. You are going to feel so good for doing this. Oh my gosh. It's just going to, just, you're going to feed or barely going to touch the floor when you walk. You're just going to feel so free. <laughs> and did you feel free though? Actually I did. Cause you once did. I filed suit, there was nothing they could do to me. Yeah. At that point, they, they, not everybody understood that, but when you understand the law, you know, cause I filed five retaliation charges against them. And, um, so, so I mounted this PR campaign and, uh, by then I had, you know, a dozen cleared lawyers, uh, on the case, there were articles coming, showing up in the Washington post and the New York times and word was getting out about the, the lawsuit. And, um, uh, you know, the, the agency was feeling the heat because lots of other people were filing suits. My goal was to have as many class suits. I was encouraging the desk officers who were angry to file suit. I was encouraging all different clusters of angry people. <laughs> I was uh, advising them on how to file suit. At one point, they had three class suits, but I think they were able to uh, peel off the class members for one so that the so the class couldn't be certified. And, and then the other kind of the class agents kind of backed out eventually. So, but I was, I was working on all that. So they were really, really busy. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, Office of General Counsel was fear feverishly hiring new lawyers because they had all these cases. <laughs> they were drowning in cases. And I'm going, hi, how you doing? <laughs> you having fun today? I'm having fun. This is, this is cool. <laughs> Well, and I'm sure that some of the other women that, you know, were along with you while you were a case officer and eventually left the case officer track and went to be desk officers were appreciative because I'm sure that some of those they women knew it was left. overdue they, yeah. and they wished they didn't have to leave the, the category to get promoted because it's where the, that's the fun job. I knew it was going to be a bumpy road, but I wasn't going to let anyone in the office see that it was a bumpy road. I always Good had a you. big smile and ready for a it, coffee and a chat. Yes. As you have on your face right now, big smile. <laughs> so yes. what were some of the elements that the case uh, resonated with you the most? Like what surprised you and what effect did gender discrimination have on the agency's women? It, 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 it had an effect on the agency writ large, uh, which I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But the most surprising or the most draining thing for me was to deal, the, um, coming to grips with the fact that you've been discriminated against is a personal uh, emotional voyage. <laughs> and you, a lot of these women had thought that they had their secret deal with the devil that would keep them from suffering those, those uh, trials and tribulations. But eventually it got to all of them. And uh, to admit it, was was a painful process for them. Uh, a lot of women in the beginning said, "Well, I'm, I understand that you had those these terrible experiences, and I'm sorry for you, but I haven't had those problems." And I just say, "That's fine, great, lucky you." Mm -hmm. uh, but that person was going to show up, and you know, in the hall in a month, saying, "What what were some of the 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 exa examples that you had of the this discriminatory behavior and something like this?" And I list a few things. 
well, yeah, no, I have had some of that happen. So I guess maybe I've had some kind of discrimination. And then they'd come back in three weeks and they'd be, you know, are, are your lawyers any good? I'm going to go talk to your lawyers. Because I kept saying, talk to these are your lawyers for the women in the, in the category. You're, right. They're cleared to talk to you. Here's their number. Go call them. Talk to them. Tell your story. It's a cathartic experience to actually be able to tell somebody who is objective what, about uh, what happened to you. So they do that. And the next thing I know, they're calling me at home, screaming at me on the phone saying, I'm not doing enough. I'm not being hard enough on the agency. I'm not making it tough enough for them. And you know, this was the same person who two months before, well, I'm so sorry you had that, but I never had those experiences. So there's this emotional continuum and mm -hmm. you multiply this time two or 300. So for the people I was running into, because I was making myself available to everybody, right? And uh, so you never knew exactly what point they were at on the line. <laughs> Am I going to have an explosion? Or are they going to get mad at me? Or are they going to cry? <laughs> or are they going to do? Because they'd run the gamut of right. uh, of emotions, and I that was exhausting. That part of it was exhausting. Um, just and and the men would try to get, talk to me privately. They tried to whisper, "I'm so proud of you for what you're doing. This is long overdue." And then I'd find out from other women friends that they said just the opposite in the staff meeting. Mm -hmm. You know, the games, everybody was playing a game. Uh, it was, it was, uh, so that was the exhausting part of it. What resonated, that was, that was part of it. And until the lawsuit, the women in the DO were not helpful or supportive of each other. They really weren't. Each one of them was trying to spin the game so that they could win without having to confront the discriminatory practices, mm -hmm. to try to find an end run around it. Uh, and that it really didn't work that well. But now, but after, after the, with the lawsuit, they started saying, we're all going to get together and have a lunch. And we're going to talk about the things that we want this lawsuit to address, even beyond the, the other, because nine other women uh, um, in early 94 joined as, as class agents. So my year and a half of being completely alone was, was, uh, was over. So women started supporting women, which was wonderful and speaking up and challenging the system for clusters of women for different, uh, different types of activities. So I, that was, you know, watching them finally link arms and walk, you know, down the hall together was a good thing. I was happy to see that. I don't know if it still exists, but it was nice to know that it was, it was there then supportive of each other at last. Right. So you, what I find interesting is that you decided to stay at the agency even after the lawsuit and you still work there today. Yes. Why did you, why did you decide to stay? I clearly need to have my head examined. No, uh, no, make no mistake. The agency wanted me gone. <laughs> and my lawyers were, when I was still overseas filing this, my lawyers were very worried. You're the only class agent. If something happens to you, this entire case vanishes and you're out of the country. You know, those people do things overseas. <laughs> <laughs> and I kept telling my lawyers, no, it's okay. It's okay. I don't think anybody's going to do anything. I'm fine. I'm, I have good trade craft. No one's going to sneak up on me. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they they kept trying to convince me to to take uh offers of going to work in other government agencies in the ic and i just said no 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 i'm staying where i am 
uh, I was, I always believed in the mission. I still do. Boy, it's got to be hard now, but I believed in the mission and, and it was a natural fit for me in so many ways. Things about the case officer task job, the tasks that were hard for other people were easy for me. And uh, I'm not going to say what parts of it I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. there were there are aspects of the job that uh, a lot of other people had had difficulty with that I didn't, and it sort of just fit like a nice glove. Well, I think the country's glad that you did. So, did people treat you differently after the suit? You know, were there repercussions for filing the suit, and do you have any repercussions today? At the time, yes, there were repercussions. My immediate supervisor, where I was assigned overseas, just when he found out that I had filed a, a lawsuit against the agent, just did everything he could to make my life even more miserable, having to work for him. But and nothing really. Uh, other than other than that, um, the the agency was staying very quiet. As long as I was overseas and the agency was staying quiet, then they didn't have to deal with an uproar. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know who stepped on the gas, but somebody, you know, the State Department had a, a similar lawsuit, uh, Allison Palmer versus Department of State. It lasted 13 years. Mine wow. was done in two and a half. So I kept saying, and I asked the, the, the lawyers, I asked them again about four months ago, who stepped on the gas? It had to have been on the agency side. Did it come yeah. from the White House? Did it come from the DCI? Who did it come from? Who stepped on the gas? Who said we have to get rid of this thing? Mm-hmm. Shut it down, settle it, get it, get it off the plate. I've never had an answer to that, but somebody did. So it, it, it moved well. Uh, the agency ignored me as much as they possibly could. Stupid people did stupid things that they shouldn't have. And that uh, enabled me to fi- file five retaliation charges because people did things they shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, but uh, there was a lot of hoopla about it. I got a lot of uh, uh, of attention. Everybody knew who I was whilst I was back as of, uh, I came back uh, in October of 93. So between October of 93 and, and 94, Everybody knew what was going on. Remember, I'm, I'm in the cafeteria marketing every right. day. I'm not keeping it secret. I'm letting everybody know who I am and what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a, there was a lot uh, going on. And then after the, the lawsuit, after the settlement, the agency fell, fell silent, made, well, made no mention of any kind of lawsuits. No, no, nothing. They just were going to you know, sh- shun it. What do you see now? Do you Have you observed the changes um, since the lawsuit and the treatment and advancement of women in the agency? And where do you think growth needs to continue? So there, there, uh, there isn't a, a straight answer for this. It's a circuitous one. For the t- lifespan of the suit itself, for those two and a half years, the agency was, uh, the DO was furiously looking for women that they could promote and put into line operations management positions because the language of the law uh, forgives the defendant and no matter who the defendant is, if they can prove, demonstrate that they have mended their ways and that they are no longer uh, employing illegal personnel practices against their own people, uh, then their, their punishment is less if they've demonstrated that they've corrected the problem and it doesn't make it go away, but they're easier. So they were, they were smart and uh, it, it, the lawyers were smart at the agency and they, they were moving to reduce 
the the uh, damage as much as possible for when they had had to present it to a federal court judge. And uh, so in that period of time, lots of women were getting good jobs, management jobs, getting promoted. So so for a couple of years, they they did well. Things kind mm-hmm. of dropped off a bit uh, after that, but. But they're 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 you know, I'm, I know there's still uh, have women in in operations management positions for heaven's sakes the D, director of CIA and the head of the DO are both women. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, but does that does that run deep into the into the ranks of the uh, of the rest of the the uh, director of operations? I don't know because I don't look at I don't have access nor do I want to see you know, the the personnel uh, information as to who's getting promoted and who isn't. So was there something that encouraged you to share your story now after 25 years? I was contacted by a couple of uh, the women who had benefited from the lawsuit, had gotten stretch assignments and things like that. And, and they, they said they wanted to, you know, they wanted to talk to me to say thank you. And they said, please tell everybody your story. Tell them, tell them how it happened. Um, the other thing to go back to your question for growth, two, two other points on that. The lawsuit, while it was directed at the Directorate of Operations, mm-hmm. impacted, I, I know, uh, the Directorate of Analysis because I, a friend of mine had, I saw outside the cafeteria, I hadn't seen her in a while. She was in the Directorate of Analysis. She was an analyst. Hey, you know, how are you doing? What you doing? She said, oh, I'm the new uh, diversity officer for the Directorate of Analysis. And I kind of said, well, that could be good news or bad news. I don't know. How do you feel about it? <laughs> and she said, well, you're the only good news that there is. And I said, why am I the good news? She said that, that women in analysts were being promoted at the same rate of, as men for the first time. And she said, and the, and the dates over which this improvement initiated track exactly with your lawsuit. In other words, all the managers in the agency didn't matter where they were. We're looking at the at the what the director of operations was dealing with and said, "Wow, we have to make sure we are not like doing them. What they did." Yeah, and uh, and she said, "I would bet that the S and T and the uh, uh, support director of support all have the same the same results." And I said, "Well, I feel thank you. That's good news." Yeah. Thank you. You, you've lifted all the women up. You made real change. You made real change. Yes, I did. I I guess I did. Being a change maker that demonstrates a lot of courage. um, And you've demonstrated that courage throughout your career as a case officer in taking a stand for something that you believed in, despite how it impacted your popularity or relationships within the CIA. What advice would you give people who find themselves trying to muster up courage to go against the grain and lead change? Um, be a change agent. Are you documenting this story somehow? I am. I I am attempting to write a book. I have about a hundred pages done. Yeah. Uh, it. Uh, it. I look at people who've written memoirs, who've had uh, unhappy experiences, and think, oh, how did you get through it? Because when you when you write something that you've lived that was stressful and difficult. Um, you relive all the emotions. You get angry again, you get sad again, you get happy again. <laughs> right. And that's draining and that, that's hard. So I, as I say, I'm, I'm part of the way through and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, I'll be able to in the next year finish it up and uh, get it through the approved for release. 
So yes, so that's, that's what I'm doing about advising others. First, talk to people who have walked in, in this path ahead of you. Talk to, you know, if I could, I tried to get a hold of Allison Palmer at the State Department. I hadn't realized that the thing had been going on for like 11 years when I talked to the lawyers who handled mm-hmm. the Palmer lawsuit. Uh, they were kind enough to talk to me. Um, I was trying to talk to other people who had been through this, but it was hard to find them. But if if they can, talk to other people who have been change agents in their in their environment, in their particular culture, because you really have to be culturally savvy to your changes have to fit with the culture. And um, and the other thing I recommend is that you read Carmen Medina's book, Rebels at Work. Mm, yes, that's and a good it's one. A, it's a good primer. It hadn't been written. I knew Carmen when I filed the, the suit. We, she and I were friends, but um, she hadn't written her book and she, she, uh, um, autographed my, my copy of the book, uh, to my first rebel. <laughs> oh, I love that. I didn't know that. That's a great story. Yeah. yeah right. Carmen, Carmen was terrific. She still is. She is. <laughs> but she people is. should take a look at that because it will help you get a sense of what some of the simpler things are. And the trick is in life, always do the simple stuff first and do it right. Mm-hmm. worry about the complex stuff later get the later. simple stuff right first and as a change agent that's what you have to do you have to get the simple stuff done I just I didn't I was just a bull in a china shop with this thing but uh, so looking back at the last 25 years how would you say overall the CIA has treated you uh, the last 25 years they've treated me well because they've fundamentally ignored me and let me do whatever I want to do. And uh, if they had treated me for the first 15 years the way they've treated me for the last 25, I probably never would have sued them. But things are calmer. Uh, I'm trying to reach out to to some of the lawyers to say, hey, it was 25 years ago. What do you remember? What Mm -hmm. sticks out in your thinking about the experience? How'd you feel about it? Don't tell me. I don't want to relitigate it. I want to know how you feel about it. And the lawyers for the class were very happy to chat with me about those things. But lawyers for the agency, oh. Still tight-lipped. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I don't know why, you know, because uh, I'm not interested in... in uh, You're just interested in the history of it now. Well, I'm interested point. in what their feelings were about it. Right. Nobody goes through a thing like this without, ha- without being impacted personally, emotionally. Right. And all of the women attached to the, this case uh, from the agency side, the lawyers were all women. And, you know, just like, really? How'd you feel? <laughs> you knew what these guys were like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we typically end each episode for our podcast listeners. They know that we ask the same question. Um you know, if you had a code name, what would it be and why? But in this case, we're going to end a little bit differently because you actually met Eloise Page, the original Iron Butterfly. You know, I just want to know what she was like. What could you tell us about her? Well, it was a brief meeting. It wasn't like some planned event. I was probably coordinating a cable in some office and somebody waved me in and said, oh, come in here and say hello to Eloise Page. I'm not sure I knew who Eloise Page was. I was like, oh, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody said, well, she was COS Athens. 
And I went, oh, wow. Yeah, cool. Uh, and, and I think for even at that time when I, when I had just started that her, she was the only woman who had held a major COS position. They had, they had had women in, in these great places on the continent of Africa where they, you boil and filter your water and there's a black mamba living in the tree outside. But, uh, but for major uh, stations that they had, no other women had been assigned. Uh, but I didn't know that at the time that I met her. She struck me as a confident, clear-headed, um, sure of herself individual. Her, she had her hair back in a twist, French twist. It was gray, but I could tell it was blonde or maybe blonde highlights. Well, that was before we did a lot with highlights. And, uh, but, but she was uh, comfortable in her skin uh, as far as I could tell. And later on, I overheard uh, two dinosaurs, remember dinosaurs, hmm? <laughs> talking about they both had uh, served in Athens and worked for her, and they did not have nice things to say. And I thought, well, if they don't like her, I love her because these two, you know, ooh, I mean, one guy wouldn't write cap- type cables, he wouldn't type. He would write everything out longhand and he always had to have a secretary to type up everything. It meant he couldn't do all sorts of things. Oh, no, no, no. I can't. I don't type. That's what women do. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah, as I said, I'm the meteorite who hit the planet and disturbed the dinosaurs environment. Absolutely. And you know what? If we were going to give you another code name, it should be Meteorite. That is perfect. (laughs) This has been such a fantastic episode. And I am really thankful that you have trusted us to share your story um, with Iron Butterfly and with our listeners. And you are a real change agent. And I think all of the women in the IC, you know, owe you a debt of gratitude. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you for all the hard work you've given to our country that you've done for the women of the IC. And uh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I believe women are actually naturally better at this than men. I would agree. I said that. (laughs) It'll be our secret. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. Thank you.